So let's continue on our journey of great Jewish photographs. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, and this was like probably the hardest photograph to find, was um, one that involves a mission that certain G'dayla Yisrael went on from America to Eretz Yisrael. Certain times there are organizations in America um, like Shuvu and uh, Lev La'achem and a few other organizations that they do a lot of like Kirov work uh, in Eretz Yisrael to try to, um, you know, bring closer the Russian immigrants or, or try to take Chiloni children and bring them into yeshivas or give them some education, to our education. And so what these organizations do is they sometimes invite American Russian yeshivas to fly to Eretz Yisrael together and to check out what's going on on the ground so that they can come back and then, you know, spread the word about what great, you know, holy work is being done in Eretz Yisrael, and that way it would help their fundraising, etc. And that was, uh, that's not uncommon even till today. So the story goes that there was, we'll start off with the story, that there was a young man who had recently become a Baal Tshuva, and he went to Yerushalayim to study in Ar Sameach Yeshiva. And then on Friday night, he was invited to his Rebbe's house. And after the meal, they were sitting around the living room schmoozing, and uh, he, they were discussing like what they did that week, what anything special happened to you this week. So the young man, this uh, you know, new, newly minted Baal Tshuva, he told over a story that he went to the Kaisal, he went to uh, the old city, and he went to Davin, and he saw some commotion taking place by, by the wall, by the Kaisal. So a lot of people were clamoring around. They didn't, he didn't know something, something out of the usual, out of the norm was taking place. So he said, like to no one in particular, he said, what's, what's going on? What's going on? So a man heard him and explained that there were two great rabbis that had come from America on a, uh, he, and on a mission for, for an organization named Lev Achim, and that people at the Kaisal wanted to catch a glimpse of these two G'daylem. And that's what the whole clamor was about. And he said one of them is Rabbi Avram Chaim Levin, who is the Rosh Hashiva of Tel's Yeshiva in Chicago, and the other is Rav Aaron Schechter, who is the Rosh Hashiva of Chaim Berlin in Brooklyn, my Rosh Hashiva. So, and this man took the Baal Tshuva, and he said, you know, would you like to get a bracha from them? And he says, sure. So he went, he pushed his way through the crowd, he brought him to these two uh, G'daylem, Rav Avram Chaim Levin and Rav Aaron Schechter, Yibadol Chaim, uh, and... Um, and he got brachas from them. At the conclusion of this story, that this, so this is what this Baal Shuvah was telling his rabbi, this is what happened to me, this is like a, a big, you know, big event for me this week that happened. I got brachas from two very big G'daylem from America. So at the end of the story, the rabbi commented that there are actually three American rabbis that were on this trip. He said, didn't the man point out Rabbi Shmuel Kamenetsky? He's the Rosh of Philadelphia. He was also, I know he was also on this mission. So he said, no, he didn't, uh, he, didn't rec- he didn't point out anything. 
And then the Rebbe showed his Talmud one of the various publications that had published pictures of Lev Lacha mission. So, you know, he pointed out the, the G'daylem that were together uh, seeing these schools in Israel. He said, look, here's a picture of the three of them. Rav Aaron Shechter was in the middle, Rav Avram Chaim Levin on the right, and Rav Shemuel Kamenetsky on the left. So the young man was stunned. Pointing to Rav Shmuel, he exclaimed, that is the man who took me by the hand and brought me over to, the, to Rabbi Shechter for a blessing, for, to the two G'dayim for a blessing. So that's an amazing story, right? So I needed to get this. This is a famous story that was circulating when it happened. And I wanted to find this picture, you know, that was going, you know, that he, because that would be really cool. So the story was brought in a certain book of, of G'daylum stories, but the person who had published it had said instead of Leiv Achim organization, he published it as the Shuvu organization. So to no, nobody else cares. What different thing? Leiv Achim Shuvu. It's a similar type of organization to Kira. But like for me, I called. I needed to find the pictures. I called Shuvu, and I happened to know some people that work in the back office there. And I said, "You have to find me this picture. It's got to be in one." You know, he said, "What what year was the mission?" I tried to sort of figure out what what year the mission was. And uh, they said, well, we, we looked all over, we can't, and we don't remember having a mission with these three particular Rosh Hashivas, we're sorry. And anyway, in the end, I tried Lev Laachem, and uh, doing a lot of detective work, I ended up finding the picture. And this is, uh, this is the picture that um, was in the story. It's a great story, no? Okay, a lot of the book was not, it's not so much finding the stories, it's finding the stories and then finding the pictures that go with it. That's, you know, it's not so hard to necessarily always find stories, but you have to find the stories about pictures, then you've got to find the pictures. Okay, that's one, uh, one story. That's one picture. This is a, a, another very, very, uh, to me it was very cool. Gervaren Cutler lived from 1891 to 1962. And Rabban Kotler was one of the great G'dayli Yisrael. Uh, he accomplished a lot in his life. Before the war, he was a Talmud in Slabotka, genius of geniuses. This is what he looked like. And, he, and then after, during, at the beginning of the war, he was able to somehow escape the Holocaust and make his way to America. He actually had a, a decision to make when he left Europe whether he should go to Eretz Yisrael and be a Rosh there because his wife's uh, father was a great Gadol himself who had a Yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael. Anyone know who his wife's father was? Rabbi Isser Zalman Meltzer. Another great Gadol, son-in-law of Aaron Cutler. Um, and then, uh, or should he come to America? And the obvious choice, like I said, was to go to Israel. And, and spread terror there. But, and terror in America was very shvach at the time. It was very, very weak. 
So, you know, obviously it was a big challenge. If you would come here, you'd have a lot of work to do to make Tyra strong again, but he didn't know. So the story goes, and it's not, not everybody agrees that it's true, but the story is uh, that he did what's called a Gairo Hagra. Anyone ever hear of a Gairo Hagra? Six times backwards, six times forward. Right. Yeah, you need a special chumash, right? You need a special, it's not, you can't just take any random chumash. It's basically, it's a system that's attributed to the Vilna Gain, which is also questionable whether or not he actually ever did it himself. But for some reason, it's attributed to him. And it's basically a great way of divining, you know, what Hashem wants from you. If you have to make a very big decision in life, so I don't know, what, what, how do I, you know, do I do this or do I do, do, I do that? Um... You know, wouldn't it be great to have like the Ur Matumim to be able to like always tell us what to do? So there's actually this system called the Garlagar. You take a certain type of Chumash, not every Chumash works, a certain type of Chumash, or maybe a Tanakh, and you open it up to a random place. You just open it up. And then, like you said, you turn it six pages this way, and then, you know, six lines, and then six this, and, you know, different, there's certain ways of, there's one way of doing it, but it's not really publicized so much. You happen to know it, but, you know, you're one of the Lamed Vav Tzadikim, so that's why you know it, but generally these are not things that are publicized. What is it called? The Goral Hagra. Goral is like a lottery of the Gra, of the Vilna Gain. Tamim tiya imashem alakacha maybe. I mean, it could be. It's like you, let's say you can't do. Let's say you have a question like, should I uh, go out tomorrow wearing a shirt blue? And you say, okay, random number generator. If it comes out five, then I'll do that. I know that's like a surf of some. Yeah. Summer. Right. That's a. It's a very big question. You're right. It's not so simple to do it, and that's why it's reserved for like very holy people in very very desperate situations. Not to be done like. Should I go out with this girl or that girl? It should be used for not that's not a, that's also an important decision, but more like Yisrael decisions, like major you know major decisions that uh, you know they really really have. Because you're right, it's not so simple to divine Hashem's you know will. It's like I remember when I was a kid, I would say like you know if I should do this, I'm going to hit this basketball right. shot, right? If I miss, that means that I'm not going to do it. If I hit it, you're not supposed to do that because you're you're sort of like you're. You're you're trying to like play games with God, like for Him to you know tell you what you. It's sort of like a sort of like witchcraft. It's not really what we believe in. But uh, these. I have a crazy story. Uh, uh, it was just funny. Huh? So I was playing with my brother, and we just like when we're bored, we just play for money when we're bored, and then it just kept on going for such a long time, and I was. Uh, it wasn't like a good, like good feeling. Like we knew that the gambling was like it wasn't getting like a good, a good spot. Yeah. Then it was taking too long. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna like shuffle this deck. I'm gonna like put five cards down. And if the fifth card from the top is a ten of diamonds, it's a sign from God that I should stop. Cause I, it, it was going too far. I shuffled the deck like for thirty seconds. I put cards one, two, three, four. Fifth card turned over ten of diamonds. <laughs> Then I can see you playing. So, anyway, there's like very cool stories about when certain G'daylam used this Garla Gra. A crazy story was Rabbi Arya Levine, who I think we spoke about this year. Um, Rabbi Arya Levine was the Tzaddik of Yerushalayim. There's a whole book called The Tzaddik of Yerushalayim about him. 
He was the father-in-law of Rebbe Yashiv, so he was the grandfather-in-law of Rebbe Chaim Ganyevsky, and he was a very, very big tzaddik. And what happened was, during one of the wars in Israel, there were several dozen soldiers that were, um, that were blown up, and they, their bodies were, they knew the bodies, but they couldn't recognize which was which. They had the names and they had the actual corpses, but they could not identify. No one was able to identify because so, but yet they wanted to bring them to Kavura. They wanted to bury them and, and, and know which one it is. So he did a Garlagra, like one, like you said about the Ten of Diamonds, like he was able to like do the Garlagra like 48 times, let's say if there were 48 corpses. And every time, like he would do it over another corpse and it would say like that, the name like Elazar and Yitzchak and Avram, and that, you know, like he was able to, like, that's really cool. You know, what you said was cool, but this is like cool times, like, you know, like to the very, very, uh, yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. So they say that Rav Aaron Cutler, when he wanted to make a decision, should I go to America or should I go to Eretz Israel? He did a Garlagra, and the Pasuk supposedly came, again, this is brought in a lot of books, but I think the family does it. The family of Ravaran rejects the story. That they, they, they had reason to believe it's not true, but the story goes that it came out on the Pasuk, Vayemer Hashem el Aaron, Hashem said to Aaron, his name was Ravaran Cutler, Hashem said to Aaron, Lech Likras Moshe Hamidbaro, go out and greet Moshe in the desert. So the desert was America, because America was a spiritual wilderness. It was known, and that's what people used to call it, it was the Midbar, it's like a Midbar, it's like dead. There was no very little doing in terms of Yiddishkeit in this whole country. Few pockets here and there, you know, but very, very few and far, it was known as a Midbar. And go and greet Meisha. Who's Meisha? Meisha Feinstein. And so he knew right away that that was what he should do, and he came, and of course he... Um, you know, he, he, he changed America. He came, he was like one of the founding fathers of, of Yiddishkeit in America. He came, he created Lakewood. First, he, before he started Lakewood, he was on, he, he started the Vadat Salah, or he energized the Vadat Salah. He spent years uh, trying to do anything and everything to save lives of Jewish people in Europe, bring them over, get them visas. After the war, in the DP camps, do whatever he could to get them svarim, get them kosher food. He was like struggling, you know, and fighting for every Jewish life. Um, I saw recently a story that he went, he got somehow a meeting uh, with the Treasury Secretary of the United States. That's a very Chashava position, right? It's a Jewish guy, not from, his name was Henry Morgenthau. And, um, and he wasn't really inclined to help Jewish people too much. He had a nice, cushy job. He didn't want to start dealing with saving, you know, the Jews in Europe and whatever. Roosevelt wasn't a big Ayav Yisrael necessarily, and his, that was the president at the time. And he was just happy that he had a job. But it was during the Holocaust. Rav Aaron got a meeting with him, and, uh, and Rav Aaron had an interpreter. Uh, he only spoke Yiddish. He didn't speak English. So he had an interpreter, and he said to tell Morgenthau, he was in a meeting with Morgenthau, he said, tell him that, you know, I know that you probably don't want to help us save Jews because of your job, but you should know that your job and, and 20 jobs like it is not worth even one single Jewish life. 
Meaning, don't think that you're so great that you have this, this you know, the spitzy job in Washington as the treasurer secretary. Saving one Jewish life is worth more than, than many, many jobs like you have. And so the interpreter didn't want to, like, say that. You know, Tim is like, chutzpah, you can't talk to a secretary of treasury like that. So he, like, toned it down a little bit. And Rav Aaron saw that it was, like, too relaxed a conversation. He said, did you tell him what I said? And then, like, Morgenthau started saying, what, what did the rabbi say? Tell him exactly what the rabbi said. And he said it. And it, like, shook him up. And he said, tell the rabbi that I'm a proud Jew and that I not only am willing to give up my position for, for the Jews, but even my very life I'm willing to give up. And, he, and from that moment on, he changed. And he, he really did a lot, this Morgenthau, to save a lot of Jews, to do everything that he could at, during the war, after the war. But this is a little bit of what Rav Aaron Kala did. He came to America and he changed uh, the whole concept of Limanat Taira. Like in Europe, yeshivas were basically a place that you go and you learn and you really do nothing else. A concept like, uh, you know, even high schools, you know, is a foreign concept in terms of, you know, that you have English and Hebrew. Certainly, you know, Lander College for Men is like a chiddish, you know, they have you know, a base medish and, and, and a college in the same building, that's quite a, you know, that's not a classical way of Reb Chaim let's say the Velazhner Yeshiva, did not have that as a model. And in fact, when, when they, they shut down the Velazhner Yeshiva because the Russians insisted on them teaching the boys Russia, the Russian language for an hour or so a day, and which wasn't the worst thing in the world, but even that they felt was a breach in, you know, in the Messiah that they had to, uh, to spread Tyre in a certain way. And Rav Aaron Cutler came to America, and in America at the time, if there were yeshivas, if there were people that were willing to give their sons a religious education, but everybody had to go to college. It was as simple as obvious that, you know, every American Jew, you know, they understood that they want to educate their children, they want to make them very marketable in the economy and make them successful, so they, everybody sent their kids to college. And Rav Aaron Cutler came to these shores and said, no, we're going back to the way it was in Europe, we're going to have a, it doesn't, he doesn't say, he didn't say that you can't have this at all in America, but he wanted to personally bring to the table or re-bring to the table this concept of a yeshiva without anything else and the concept of a kailo. You know, you could be married and just learn and not do any college and not work or whatever. That was, today, that's, a, that's you know, that's, that's pasha. Like most people, I think, many people do start their married life off Learning a, learning a bit, or at least learning and going to college or something. But back then, it was unheard of. Like, you know, everybody, everybody, you know, went to college. Everybody got a job. There very few people uh, could afford to. It was a luxury to be able to learn. But it wasn't like... Rav Aaron came and he started this place called Lakewood, based Madish Gavaya, and it started up very small, maybe, you know, 10 guys maybe, and then it grew a little to 15 guys, 20 guys, and then by the time he died, there were several hundred. And then his son, Rav Schneer, took over for him. And then by the time he died, there were thousands. And now today, there's like, Lakewood is crazy, right? It's like, it's, it's tremendous. It's, I don't know, the number, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand, you know, single guys, married guys, families. They built this huge community in Lakewood and Tom's River and, you know, and Jackson and all these communities exploding. Lakewood is like the biggest... You know, I think it's the, the most populous uh, region in New Jersey, maybe in the United States for that. But it's, it's crazy what's going on there. All started by Rav Aaron Cutler. Now, if anyone, 
ever knew somebody who may have seen Rav Aaron Kotler, and I, I've met a few people that have seen Rav Aaron Kotler, everybody says the same thing. Anyone that's seen Rav Aaron Kotler noticed one thing about him, and that was he had eyes that were blue beyond blue. Like, you know, they were, they were like blue blazing eyes, like two sapphires glowing in his face. That's how, that's how people describe it. Now, you know, sometimes you see people with blue eyes, but it's not, you know, okay, they have blue eyes. Like his, his eyes were like shining blue. So there's really only one color, because at the time, he, he was nifted already in 1962. So by then, color film was just beginning to be developed. To, to, you know, to, but it was very expensive. So I spoke to, there was a very famous photographer, his name was Harry Trainer. Trainer was like the biggest photographer. All the, all the pictures of Gedalion that you see from, you know, from like the Satma Rebbe, if you know what he looked like, or, or of Aaron Cutler, or Yaakov Kamenei, all these pictures, the classic pictures of Gedalion, most of them were taken by Harry Trainer because he was a, a wedding photographer, and that's where you took pictures of Gedalion, by weddings, right? They were sitting there, you know, under a chuppah, or by the chassan's table, or whatever, and so he had many of the... So normally he took photographs in black and white because that was relatively inexpensive. But he always kept, he told me this, he was Nifter a couple of years ago, Harry Trainer. but like when I was writing the book, I called him up and I said, you know, tell me how you got the only color picture of Aaron Cutler, you know, so we could see, so for a thousand years, they'll always be able to see how blue his eyes were. He said, because I always kept in my photo bag, in my camera bag, a roll of color film it was very, very expensive at the time. It was just being produced. I bought one. It was a big, big expense for me. I bought one and I put it in my. Very rarely did I would I ever touch it. But then I was at a wedding and I saw Aaron Cutler and I saw his blue eyes and I said, I need to get a picture of those blue eyes for posterity. I know that people always want to know what his eyes really look like. So he popped out the black and white roll and he put in the color roll. And he says, and I, I took a picture. He said, um, when he saw Ravaron, he immediately loaded his camera with a roll of color film he kept in his bag for rare occasions and captured the blueness of Ravaron's holy eyes. I'm going to show you what the picture looks like in a second. I just want to, uh, before I do that, read uh, to you what a Talmud of Ravaron, Rabshal Kagan, uh, said. He says, did you ever see his photograph? Do not accept it. For neither artist nor camera could capture the fire in his eyes, the radiance on his face, the exhilaration of his presence, the zrizus, the quickness of his movements, the vital and elemental life force that flowed from the man. So as much as we think that we're able to see from this picture the blueness of his eyes, but it's not real, it doesn't do him justice. You have to really actually see him in real life. Of course, we were in Zeichah too because we were all born you know, after he was Nifter, but at least as a little bit of a, a memory, we're able to use this picture and to see what his eyes look like.
just see one thing. Yeah, in the back of the book, I think I told you, I, I put like different footnotes that are relevant to the personality that something photo related. So just want to read to you what I wrote about Ravaran. When the Lakewood Yeshiva printed receipt books for donations, displaying on each page a photo of the building, the building, the graphic artist decided to add extra shrubbery to enhance the appearance of the edifice, meaning they like photoshopped the picture or maybe it was an artist, it might not have been a photograph, it might have been a, you know, just a, an artistic rendition of the building, but they added like shrubbery to the front, which is not unusual, right? You want to make your yeshiva look spitzier, look fancier, so they put, uh, they, they added that to the picture. And when the Rashiva of Aaron Cutler saw the picture, he immediately noticed the change and instructed that all the receipt books be destroyed and new ones be printed with an accurate picture. He said the yeshiva is based upon the underpinnings of truth, and even the slightest amount of falsehood is intolerable. That's a very good Musar Haskell for us all to remember. Like a lot of times, and we do this a lot, and Ramesh has a tshuva about it, um, with resumes. Uh, sometimes we'll, uh, what's called padding a resume. Anyone ever hear that expression? So what you do is you basically, you know, you have a resume. You don't want to like, it's, you give an exact, you know, so you'll say I was the, uh, you know, I had a very, you know, I was the, uh, you know, I don't know, I was a managing director of a certain company. It's really your father's company. You worked there three minutes in the summer. Like, but you put on your resume, you're the manager. It sounds good, right? But it's a lie. It doesn't, it doesn't, it, no one's going to catch you on it, but, you know, you're working in a candy shop for, you know, a couple of hours a, a day. So you were the, uh, you know, you were the director of marketing. Uh, you know, you have to, so Ramesha says you have to be very careful when you're writing up a resume to not embellish it. You know, you can use nice words, but, you, but to start adding things and changing facts and saying you were, you graduated on the top of your class or summa cum laude instead of uh, whatever, something lower, Anything like that is, it's not only dishonest, but if you get the job because of your dishonesty, it's very possible that every, all the money that you're going to make from that job is really, in a sense, you know, dishonest money. So you have to always, it's never worthwhile to be untruthful in these types of things because, like, just be honest, you know, tell people what you are. People sometimes will be very... You know, they don't mind. They'd rather you be honest than to have a fancy resume and it, and it being, you know, not true. They could probably, they probably know already, you know, what's true and what's not true. People that are headhunters or whatever, they probably know what's real and what's not. But if you're, you know, it doesn't mean to say you shouldn't make your resume look nice, but, to, but it should be honest. It should be like an accurate portrayal of what your skill sets are and what you know, what you, what, you know, and not to put things on that you didn't because... If you start out your job dishonestly, then a lot of uh, what will follow afterwards, besides for the fact that your salary will be, you know, maybe dishonestly gained, but also a lot of things else will slip as a result. So these are uh, important lessons that I think we learned today, and we're looking forward to Mitzvah Shem to seeing you again this time next week.